Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Adam. Uh, we've got Andrew here as well. Hi, everyone. We have an interesting guest this week. Matt O'Coin is an opera composer, which by itself is pretty amazing. Andrew and I both listened to opera. We jumped at the opportunity to interview a living, innovating practitioner of the craft. Um, In 2015, Matt premiered his opera Crossings, which is about Walt Whitman's experiences during the Civil War. It was commissioned by the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Where all this started is that Andrew saw that opera, contacted Matt, and asked him to come to Stony Brook and give a lecture and concert. Isn't that right? Yeah, I saw it um, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, at the BAM. At the BAM. I know. Well, BAM. everyone might not be New York based, so I'm trying to be inclusive here. But BAM yeah. was my little brother's favorite word when he was two. <laughs> After Sorry, BAM, Har- BAM in Har- the Har- Har- no, 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 no. He was watching emerald lagasse's cooking shows ah that was yeah that's a great phrase with emerald lagasse okay so yeah so that's how i first knew about that Mm -hmm. and you were saying that you you invited him to stonerbrook you got funding for him you got people you got you got a um we got the whitman singer singer. uh we got rod gilfrey who reprised his role as whitman at stonerbrook which was pretty incredible um it was oh and we've linked um it's up on YouTube, so that Stony Brook performance is linked in our notes, as is the symposium, too, um, where I talk about homoerotic Whitman uh, conversations. Um, yeah, so hopefully everyone makes use out of our... If it's a day free, and why. Yes, and everything is free and accessible, so... Yes. Definitely. And what what I think um, that's that's kind of what I want to focus on in all of this is that you can just call people, mm-hmm. right? Academics, we live in our sort of caves a lot mentally, and I I think it's I think it's worth emphasizing that Andrew just called somebody and made something happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, emailed if I want to be technical. Oh my God. But yes, I know you're doing it. I was born in the eighties. I was born in the eighties. We, we call people. (laughs) But you're right. This was a form of networking that I took a chance and it does pay off. Well, it can. It can. You never, you never know who's on the receiving end. And a lot of the times artists are listening. And it turns out that Matt is, is receptive. I mean, he's, yeah, he's receptive to, to these ideas, um, to these opportunities, etc. So good on you for doing that. And then um, once again, Matt was gracious enough to accept an invitation to our podcast to do an interview about the creative process. Now, thanks to a fellowship from the MacArthur Foundation, um, yes, really, 
Mm -hmm. um, what follows will not be a typical ivory tower boiler room interview, but Matt does talk about a new opera company that he co-founded himself called the American Modern Opera Company or AMUK. And that, if for those of you wondering, that's definitely an acronym that came before they figured out what all the what all of the letters meant. Um, so, but if you're a performer, if you're a composer, if you're a conductor, a scholar of music in your own right, um, and you're wondering what what to do this year, you can reach them through their website, mm -hmm. runningamuck.org. <laughs> uh link in the notes to this episode and and i'm sorry all i can think of is the hocus pocus lines about a muck a muck a muck but <laughs> i'll let my my queer obsession with hocus pocus uh not invade this following interview i mean uh, too late <laughs> it's true i did just insert that <laughs> that for those of you keeping notes is what we call antiphrasis which is the rhetorical, de rhetorical device of injecting something in the conversation by saying you're not going to inject something into the conversation. <laughs> and without further ado, before Andrew brings up yet another of his queer obsessions, we've had Whitman so far, we've had Hocus Pocus. If RuPaul's Drag Race comes out, I'm, well, actually, I, that's I'm your illusion. Like that. That's yeah, not I'm my illusion. Like that mine, is, Andrew, mine is Andrew queer doesn't watch that show, but I do. No, no. I'm going to get Adam, I'm getting Adam into Queer as Folk and Call Me By Your Name. That will be happening in the winter break. What's funny is that the very first essay I read in college was by Andre Osserman. Mm. It was called Arbitrage. I remember that very well, clearly. It was 2004 when Andrew was in preschool. Not necessarily true, but I'm not, not going to correct you on the record. No, uh, with you. And let's just say Andre Asiman is now, um, it's almost the, um, we, might, we might not keep this part, but um, I'll just go for it. The, is it seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? What's the? Yes. Okay, seven uh, six, degrees of six Kevin. Degrees. Six, six degrees. degrees of Kevin Bacon. I should, I should know more about that because he's a Philly native. You're, but, you're just not a man of culture, clearly. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with Kevin Bacon. Um, and it's almost like we are now, well, we're now two degrees from Andre Asiman since his um, PhD student has joined our writing group. So just throwing yeah. it out there. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> we shall see what's to come in our future with interviews. That's never know. Um, but, okay. Andre Osman is going to be the next guy we get to into our writing group. That's, Basically, that's, that is that's now the goal. The goal. Um, the goal. And Matt will be creating compositions for our music during the writing group. Fantastic. And this I'm is not, all. This is all in our heads. But I'm not giving up my Schubert. Sorry. <laughs> this is an but, ongoing concern. Um, for for those of you listening right now, I I do think it's important that we discuss our process while we're about while we're introducing this interview where we're going to talk about Matt's process or where Andrew's going to talk about Matt's process um, with him. Um, but seriously, when what because what, what we do is we 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 meet over Zoom and we talk for a bit. We discuss our ideas. Occasionally somebody read something in the newspaper that they just have to have to fetch about. That's understandable. Mm -hmm. And then we start a timer, right? 
And for 45 minutes, I'm there listening to like a Schubert string quintet, something like that, while I'm doing my writing. And then Andrew turns off his mute, but not before, like he's, he, he does this on purpose because he wants us to know that he's able to write while Patti LuPone is yelling in his ear or something like that. Like you listen to the most unproductive music I've ever heard a person listen to. You might as well just hit yourself with, one, with a hammer with one hand while typing with the other hand. I don't understand how you do it. Poor Patty. She is such an inspiration, first Patty of all. She's is, a diva. And Patty Lupone is wonderful. She's amazing. And I've seen her in, in, in live performance. Yes, she's incredible. But, but I would not study to her dulcet tones. But I do think that, as we're being upfront with our listeners, that we all are very aware now more about our writing process. And I know that I turn to certain music for certain um, inspiration. So if I turn to Broadway, it's usually because I need a little more energy in my writing. I turn to, now I started to look more into um, uh, spa music, which is basically instrumental music that will, try to loosen your muscles um so it that actually helps me with my flowing of my sentences a little more but all of this might come in a different no that's fantastic well so we are always uh in interested in sharing our process and in um getting word of our writing group out there if you yourself we have, we even have a non-writer. We have a guy who just works for a living and he shows up and he like spends an hour with us and then he goes off on his business. I mean, he's technically writing, but he's writing like business emails. Yeah, anyway, he's doing so, technical writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I. It's a community. Like, We're a community of support. We are. And, and we all write in a capacity, but it's at the end of the day, and this, I think, is a good interlude, Adam. So you did, you built the bridge. Um, <laughs> and Matt and I start to talk later in the interview, we talk about the isolating work that artists are expected to do, but how that is starting to change. And I think our writing group, I'm pretty sure I bring up as an example, um, of bringing our community together in terms of the support. And I think that's really important because even though our work is independent, um, the way that we're generating ideas and the way that I've generated my Whitman chapter is through these conversations by pitching ideas to those who are part of the writing group. And- Yeah, a lot of Eureka moments. Yeah. And so on that, I would say happy note. Uh, turn it over to Andrew interviewing Matt O'Coin about his creative process, about his artistic origins, and about his new opera, Eurydice. Eurydice. Yep. Which will be at the Metropolitan Opera House at the end of November. Putting that pitch in. Um, and we're actually going to start with um, an excerpt from Crossing that Matt gave the stamp of approval for. Um, so covered our copy right to... there. Um, and yeah. it is the final chorus of 
the uh, crossing sweep. So spoilers. Yes. So <laughs> we hope you all enjoy it. And um, as always, please stay safe and healthy. And we wish you all a happy holiday season. Cheers. <laughs>
um, who also wrote the libretto for the opera. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do it as scheduled in uh, November and December of next year. And everyone who is in the Northeast or anywhere, um, I think we can all try to put that into our calendars to see uh, Eurydice at the Med. And I know I can't wait to see it. So uh, I'm geeking out just that I know someone who's having a production at the Med. Um, but that's my own, my own neurosis. Um, <laughs> So I met you, well, I met oh, you. I'm freaking it. out oh, too, yeah. to be honest, so. Oh, okay, so is it, how does it feel to know that you're going to be premiering at the Met? I'm just curious from your end. Uh, uh, well, you know, the Met's perspective or attitude rather towards new pieces has uh, evolved quite a bit. Uh, for a long time, uh, there were very few <laughs> new pieces uh, at um, the company that considers itself the flagship um, opera house, rightly or wrongly. Um, and I'm happy to say that the, the current administration there has really uh, raised the bar in terms of how many uh, new pieces and also, you know, the, the diversity of perspectives represented among those pieces. Um, uh, you know, even five years ago, it felt like if there was one new piece in, in the season there, it was the only one. And so there was a sort of tremendous amount of pressure. And, you know, what's exciting is that in the 21-22 season, um, uh, my piece is one of three very new pieces. Um, the other two are Fire Shot Up in My Bones by uh, the composer and, I believe, jazz trumpet player Terrence Blanchard, um, uh, and also Brett Dean's uh, adaptation of Hamlet. Uh, so it's cool. Uh, I, I know Brett a little bit, and uh, I think everybody involved feels like it's nice to have some company. <laughs> it's nice for it not to be like, okay, you know, you're going to go up head to head with the Valkyra and by God, your piece better be a masterpiece. Um, it, 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 you know, it's, it's important. You know, if you look at, at, at the, the average season at an opera house during times in history, when it felt like the, the art form was really um, thriving, there were a lot of new pieces in a given season. Uh, and it was expected that some would do great and some would fail. And the only way to, um, create an ecosystem where awesome pieces will emerge is to give a lot of people chances. Um, so this is a long way of saying um, that, of course, I'm thrilled um, <laughs> to be bringing the piece to New York, and I'm also thrilled that I'm not <laughs> the only one who's doing so next year. Well, and I'm curious, how did it end up being um, the, your world premiere um, end up in Los Angeles? Um, I have had uh, a, a special connection both with the city of Los Angeles and with Los Angeles Opera um, for the past four or five years. Um, until this year, I was artist in residence uh, at LA Opera. Um, that was a position that um, was kind of uh, tailor-made. It, it, it didn't exist beforehand, but in, in conversation with 
the folks at LA Opera, we kind of crafted this, this wonderfully flexible um, job, which involved um, uh, both, you know, I would conduct uh, at the company every season, you know, I conducted Philip Glass's Akhenaten, I conducted Verdi's Rigoletto, I did a lot of my own stuff. It was really wonderfully broad. Um, and part of the deal was that uh, LA would uh, co-commission this new piece. Uh, and it worked out really nicely um, because uh, the Met, in, uh, it's a little bit similar to the way uh, Broadway theaters approach the question. You know, they don't actually want to be the first company to produce a piece. Um, it just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, they, they put on like 26 shows a year, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and often that means that there are three or four different pieces happening in a single week. So it's very hard to build something new in an environment like that. Um, it's much easier and healthier, I think, for the artistic process to build a show for the first time in, in uh, an environment where there's a little bit more space. Um, and LA Opera, you know, it's also a big company, but they only do about six shows a year as opposed to 26. <laughs> so um, because of that, uh, you're not uh, competing uh, for use of the stage, you know, practical things like that. Um, and you can have a longer, a longer process to literally, you know, build the production. It doesn't matter so much for me as the composer, but it really matters for the people who are building the sets um, and who are, you know, dealing with questions of, of lighting and, and stagecraft. Um, so in a way, that's, uh, that's how the, the LA New York um, partnership came together. Um, and, you know, I also really love uh, Los Angeles. I lived there for a year and uh, I still, you know, before the pandemic would try to, to spend as much time there as possible. Um, this is the first winter in about five years that I haven't been able to find excuses to <laughs> to do musical work in Southern California. So I miss that very much. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be in SoCal than, than the Northeast. Um, for the next couple of months, for sure. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but well, the way I got to know Matt was through the Whitman Opera Crossing, which I hope you're not offended if I call it the Whitman Opera, but uh, Crossing um, is the That's opera. That's what it is, title. yeah. Um, yeah. And was that also premiered with um, the Los Angeles Opera? Uh, no, Crossing was was developed uh, with a theater in Boston, the American Repertory Theater, ART, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, it was kind of an organic connection. Uh, I was a student in Boston, and, and uh, I got to know the team uh, at the ART uh, while I was an undergrad, and we started talking about a project uh, right around the time that I graduated, so it was a kind of seamless um, uh, seamless process. They they mm-hmm. share a theater space with Harvard, and uh, I had done a student piece, a really <laughs> really sloppy student piece in that space. And I think the team there saw it and decided, okay, well let's let's try and take the next step. Together. Well, um, I don't know if they would classify it as sloppy, but um, I <laughs> ART isn't that also where Diane Paulus 
did Pippin, and there's been a few musicals. Well, yes, and, and, and Diane actually, Diane directed Crossing, too. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. <laughs> I'm a, I love the Pippin revival. Um, I got a chance to see that in New York. Well, you can let her know. I think she's <laughs> a masterful director. Um, but mm -hmm. so you do your undergrad at Harvard um, and you majored in English? That's right, yeah. Okay. And so with the curriculum at Harvard, how are you able to balance the humanities with also composition? Well, when, I, was, when I mean, sorry, uh, when I mean I composition, mean kind of a... <laughs> sorry, when I mean composition, I mean um, in the musical sense, not composition and rhetoric, just to get that out there. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be a little bit of a masochist um, to, to, to want to juggle different things. But um, uh, I was, you know, uh, I was attracted to the idea of being at a university uh, where I would uh, be able to meet people who, who worked in a wide range of, of disciplines. Um, I always had a slight resistance to the idea of, of going to a conservatory. It's strange. I mean, in hindsight, I, I don't think it was entirely <laughs> rational or healthy. You know, I, I would have benefited from certain aspects of the structure at a conservatory um, at various points along the way and, and had to had to make up for that later. But uh, there's a lot to be said, I think, for um, uh, for being able to to, to deepen and, and broaden your education in a, in a way that, that a university can offer. And given that I was there, uh, I, I thought, well, I, I, I can make music as much as I want. I don't need to major in it. Um, mm -hmm. And the music major at Harvard is not, it's not really a performance degree, or at least it wasn't when I was there. Uh, it's more kind of musicology focused and that really wasn't what I was interested in so I thought okay well I'll 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 practice like hell I'll, I'll you know study conducting independently I'll get involved with you know opera companies in the Boston area but I also really care about literature um, and I had the chance to work with some unbelievable uh, teachers you know Jory Graham the poet um, Helen Vendler the critic um, and you know that that had an impact on uh, my craft uh, musically as well as otherwise. You know, I think what Jory taught me about form and and process uh, was totally you know transferable to music, even though she was working in a in a totally different medium. So it was a it was a messy path, uh, and I did realize around the time that I graduated that. You know, I really had to get my shit together uh, as far as a couple of things about my composition technique. Um, so I, you know, did the, the the master's program at Juilliard. Admittedly, I didn't really finish it, but I I learned a lot um, from you know kind of having my my feet held to the fire musically in a way that I didn't during college. Um, 
So yeah, but I also think it's it's uh, it's pretty essential if you're going to work in opera specifically that you you have to have a certain familiarity with with language as language, not just you know uh, in the context of it being set to music. You gotta you gotta know how it works uh, on its own turf, so to speak. Um, so it's it's all uh, it's all fruitful. Yeah, and. I mean, I feel I could take this in so many directions from what you offered there, from Juilliard to, I kind of want to follow up on that story, but I don't know if I want to go there yet, because I have a feeling it'll probably appear later when I ask further questions. But just with this whole understanding opera from a literary perspective is a really productive route, I think, because there's so much, so many literary illusions in your operas, of course, are based on, well, either in Whitman's case, his um, Civil War poems slash prose, or with Eurydice, the origin of this myth through different narratives. But I also was always drawn to opera. And when I was younger, I trained in ballet. So I always approached ballet through the literature because so many ballets are either a Shakespeare ballet or um, um, have these roots in mm -hmm. literary illusions. Um, so I'm curious what, which genres of literature or which courses did you specifically um, latch onto when you were studying um, your undergrad? Oh man, there were a lot. Um... Certainly, you know, Jory Graham was teaching poetry workshops, you know, was where students would create new work. Um, and uh, it's kind of a life goal of mine to, to someday uh, create a similar system for, for composers. Um, composition lessons tend to follow a kind of master apprentice model where it's one-on-one -on -one and, uh, uh, and very kind of sealed off. Um, and in in the creative writing world, as I'm sure you know, Andrew, it's, it's, it tends to be uh, more of a group exercise. And I, I found that uh, really generative. Uh, you know, every week there'd be these worksheets of, of all the, the stuff that people had, had been working on that week. And what you saw happen was that uh, <laughs> it became this kind of psychic goulash, you know, where everybody's uh, everybody's personality kind of rubbed off on each other and this strange mysterious thing would kind of you know it was like a, 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 a cultic you know shared madness mm. would take over um, and it was it was it was really uh, really kind of inspiring and 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 Jory knew how to you know she knew how to stir the cauldron um, <laughs> so that was that was pretty formative uh, gosh, what else? Um, well, Ellen Vendler, I have her, I see her Dickinson book every time I wake up because it's one of the bookshelves near me and um, find her approach. Staring down formidably, yeah. yes. intimidatingly at you. <laughs> but I, well, <laughs> I find her approach to 19th century, especially the Dickinson poetry, she's so good at locating 
why Dickinson uses enjambment in such a circumstance or the line of verse. She's just such a good close reader. And um, it seems that's what you really, why you really uh, get, um, focused a lot of your time on poetry, it seems. You were really interested in verse. Yeah, I was interested in the in the craft of it. And, and you know, Helen Vendler, I mean, she was the kind of professor that it, it really didn't matter what class she was teaching, you would just take whatever it was so as to, you know, be in her presence and get to know her. Um, so I, I, you know, I barely even remember which, I, you know, I took a, I don't even really like Yates, but I took a Yates class with her just because <laughs> I wanted to learn from her. Um, and she, as it turned out, uh, she's a huge music fan. I, I remember going to her office hours and it was difficult to get her to talk about poetry because she just wanted to talk about music with me. Um, and, and uh, you know, really knew her stuff. Um, uh, so yeah, it's just a fantastic, fantastic teacher. You know, I, I, I remember she really came down hard on me once for being a, a, a bit hasty and I, I took, you know, one class too many one semester and hadn't really had time to um, do one F, one essay justice. And she, you know, it would have slipped by most professors, um, but she came down hard on me and then I worked my ass off the rest of the semester and, you know, got into her good graces. Um, and it was, yeah, it was meaningful. I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the time, I'm not sure you found this, Andrew, but in, 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 in some English classes in, in college, it can be hard to be really rigorous because you want, you know, different kinds of reading to be, um, to be accepted and you don't want to shut students down. But she kind of, she managed to do this thing of, 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 of holding everybody to a very high standard while also, you know, respecting that they had different perspectives on on literature at hand um, mm -hmm. she she really had a, a scientist's view of like okay you know we're dealing with this object we are dealing with this thing that has some intrinsic properties you know what's your evidence <laughs> you know she would not let you float off into the clouds and, and make shit up um which was much appreciated yeah and I, you know i and she was available yeah. and she it seems like she's very available to all the students so um she's giving of her time and you're supposed to rise to that occasion. Totally, totally. Yeah, and well, did you take, because um, Eurydice is so on my mind right now with your um, work, but, and I'm sure it's in your mind all the time, um, or maybe not, <laughs> depending on your creative process. Um, well, actually, I'm curious. Once you do compose an opera, do you find that you quickly want to move away from that material? This is something that's changed as I've gotten a little bit older. Um, with with crossing uh, the the Whitman piece that you mentioned, I really didn't feel like I got it right the first time. Um, uh, in in Boston in 2015, I really felt that. Um, there was some some fat that could be trimmed. Um, some things happened in the wrong order. Uh, the orchestration uh, was lagging behind where I felt that I had gotten to as a composer. So I I spent like nine months 
doing this massive surgical overhaul of the piece. You know, I changed the instrumentation slightly, and if you change the instrumentation even a little bit, it can mean that you have to rewrite <laughs> practically every bar to get the, the coloring and the balances right. Um, and I, I made some much needed tweaks to the, to the drama. Um, and I think the reason that I had to revise the piece so much was that I wrote the libretto myself and I made some mistakes. Most of the problems originated in the libretto. Um, this time I worked with Sarah Rule, who is a playwright and so who has a real, I mean, and not just a playwright, but a, a sublimely wonderful one. And, and she has a, uh, such a, 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 a sharp eye for, uh, you know, balance uh, across the span of a whole evening in her plays that um, with Eurydice, I, I don't want to change anything. I mean, I, I made a couple of little tiny nips and tucks um, mm -hmm. between LA and, and the Met, but we're talking about like, you know, uh, you know, I added four seconds of music at one point in order to make a scenic transition easier. Here. But we're talking about things of that that level, really, really tiny things. Um, and that, you know, that that's a kind of profound lesson that you, you need to be working from from solid materials, uh, and you have to be sure about that before you before you start. <laughs> Otherwise, you're asking for uh, you're asking for a, a major uh, renovation <laughs> headache in the future. Well, and. I know it's not always exciting probably for um, a composer to hear a review, but this review, trust me, I would not pull a fast one on you. This is a very glowing review and you brought up the libretto of Crossing. So I think it's very um, timely in the conversation. Um, I, this comes from Limelight Magazine. They said, of Alcoin's libretto, Alcoin has skillfully fashioned a tautly structured libretto that is as grand and glorious as the poet himself. Alcoin's musical voice is immediate and authoritative. A delicate colorist, he can conjure stars in a night sky or a river in flood. His word setting is adroit, demanding, and frequently inspired. Also, this comes from your website, so <laughs> I'll put, you, you know, you've approved of this review. Um, uh, I wonder if you did a certain Whitman. Whitman used to do his own reviews, but I don't. I don't think you did that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you learned a little from Whitman. But no, that was such a beautiful, right? What yeah. a beautiful review of describing the libretto process of, um, or what it was like as an audience member. And when I saw Crossing in the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I remember how anxious I felt sitting there in the beginning because there is so much tension in the music. Um, mm. And in my mind, I kept thinking, how is this composer, I didn't know Matt at the time when I saw Crossing, um, how is he going to pull off presenting Walt Whitman in the Civil War um, mm. and a certain erotic dimension of him as a nurse and how I was really curious how you were going to finagle the um, queer dynamic um, really because it's never something that has been really brought to the visual uh, element and there's really no Whitman 
um, film adaptations. There's one Whitman film adaptation of mm. him in Canada, but that's the only, there's nothing of him in the Civil War. And um, uh -huh. I was just, that, I was very curious to see how that was going to transpire. Um, so how did it transpire <laughs> in your eyes? <laughs> well, obviously I um, thought you really effectively um, showed Whitman in being in command of himself. I really get that from uh, the libretto specifically, but how um, commanding a presence and an, he has a certain authoritativeness without being extremely narcissistic or full of an ego, um, which I think, you know, Whitman can start to go into the egotistic side, depending on what you're reading. Um, but I really thought there was such a care taken with um, how his nursing humanized him and also humanized the situation of mm -hmm. the fracturing of America and that he's a nurse of the Confederate soldiers and the Union soldiers. And um, that he opens him, himself up in this, I'm not gonna reveal too much if, you know, um, everyone wants to look into the opera more, but there is that erotic dimension of him and this younger soldier and I thought it was a really, there was a certain contemporary uh, nature of not him coming out. Like it didn't go into this anachronistic, him taking a sexual orientation, um, but he revealed a lot of himself to this younger soldier. And when the younger soldier turns the tables, it was a gut punch. So in that way, um, it, I thought it worked really well. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you glad you felt that way, Andrew. I mean, that was uh, that was especially tricky. I mean, there's a lot of tricky things about Whitman, but I wanted to capture, you know, his his contradictions. He's open about contradicting himself in in his work, and uh, you mentioned one of them, one of these contradictions, which is that he wanted to be the nurse and the poet of the Union and the Confederacy, um, mm. which is both inspiring and selfless and also kind of impossible. Um, you know, it's, it's this curious thing that you see in his diaries that he, he desperately does not want to uh, pick sides uh, mm. in this conflict. Uh, you know, you just cannot picture him picking up a rifle and shooting at his fellow man. I mean, you just cannot picture Walt Whitman doing that. Um, and I think that being a nurse was his way of, 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 I mean, sort of, if, if it's possible to say this heroically avoiding the question, because um, he wasn't a pacifist. He did believe that the war was, was just, I mean, if anything, he believed, um, uh, really quite patriotically that, you know, the American project was glorious and its triumph was inevitable. Um, and yet, and by the American project that, you know, I should say the union project at that mm -hmm. time, 
And yet he wasn't going to fight himself. He wanted to, to play a healing role. Um, and for him, healing even the enemy was, uh, was required morally. Mm. And, you know, that's really complicated. Um, and then there's the added complexity that, yes, he was a, a middle-aged gay man uh, spending time with a lot of soldiers. And he often talks in, in the diaries about how close he became with them. And, and it seems that he uh, entered into a, a real relationship with, with, with uh, someone, a former soldier after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to put pressure on all of these things and kind of uh, bring us into this weird purgatory of this, of this war hospital that's in between North and South. You know, it's in the kind of no man's land mm-hmm. South of DC at the time. So, you know, we're not in the North, we're not in the South. We're not really in life or death because everybody in this hospital is kind of suspended between life and death. Um, and Whitman himself, you know, I, I'm taking a leap here, but I'm imagining that he, he was having a kind of midlife crisis, a kind of Dante level. Mm. I got to the middle of my life and I found myself in this dark wood, um, uh, crisis. And that's, and that's where the, where the drama starts. Mm. Um, so I wanted to, to show a very complex Walt Whitman, not not the kind that not not the Walt Whitman that we you know encounter in in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have any. There was no. Um, uh, oh, Captain, my Captain, and that's it. Or it was even interesting. There's no. Um, I thought that in middle of the in the middle of things really worked because um, it would have been a very different opera if you had decided to show Whitman um, being born and like a, <laughs> I just could imagine a baby scene, which I'm sure it could be interesting in a Lion King sense, but then him going to Brooklyn, like there could be a chronological opera, but it's just, I think also because it was such this snapshot moment and that you bring in, I mean, I can't leave this without talking about um, the runaway slave and um, with such an important dimension because so many conversations that I have right now with scholars or my own students, um, we focused, with my students, I focused on Whitman's contradictions like you phrased it, but specifically, the racial dimension and how he there's a frustration because i wish i could say and whitman was an abolitionist but it's not true because he doesn't claim that sort of identity and he also has very racially offensive writing in certain um pieces that he writes in prose and i think to try and navigate these complexities opens up the um it reflects a mirror back at what it, what America's um, blind spots, but also how it hasn't lived up to what democracy is even imagined by Whitman in a poetic way and how he thinks of democracy. And he's not necessarily living that poetic imagination. I'm not sure if I conveyed that well, but... Um, 
I no, I see what you're I see what you're saying. Uh, Whitman's views on on race are uh, hard to get a handle on, and they're you're right, they're not not clearly abolitionist because um, you know often with these kinds of issues, Whitman feels like to take a stance is to uh, lessen the universality of his message. You know, so you have uh, on on the positive side, you have accounts in the diaries of saying that the the black soldiers are as courageous as the white ones and things like that. But on the other side, on the negative side, you have something like the moment in his poem, The Sleepers, where he's sort of treating sleep as this democratizing force and saying that sleep makes us all equal. And he goes so far as to say, um, you know, the master and the slave uh, join hands and, you know, reading it, you just go, no, they don't, you know, you can't, you can't make that leap. You can't, uh, you can't heal that wound. Uh, it, it's just not responsible, um, artistically. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, this is a kind of the dark side of Whitman's desire to speak for everyone. You know, the, the writer Ben Lerner has, has some, really brilliant things to say about this. He talks about how there's almost a kind of corporate dimension. Huh. <laughs> there's this giant corporate voice, you know, to Whitman saying, uh, you know, every atom that belongs to me as, as good belongs to you, mm. or vice versa, rather. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to say so is to suddenly become incapable of recognizing difference, because if you really recognize difference, then all of your atoms are no longer shared. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's very American in a way, Whitman's desire to steamroll these issues mm. and, and, and speak in this, in this bloated kind of epic tone. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to, to get back to the, the, the character that you mentioned, um, or a runaway enslaved person, um, Freddie Stowers, mm. uh, a formerly enslaved uh, man, uh, you know, it felt important to have uh, uh, a black man speak in his own words and address Whitman and tell him his own story. And I even sort of created the sense in the piece that, that Stowers kind of inspired one of Whitman's poems or kind of, you know, uh, actually had the experience and, and, and Whitman maybe sort of listed it. That's a, that's a fictionalization. Um, and I'm not sure if I handled it uh, adroitly or not, but it was, that was a totally essential voice to have there in that, uh, in that hospital. Yeah. And I, I really feel that the erotic dimension of Whitman's poetry, and I'm so close to it with research, but, um, just even when you brought up Ben Lerner and I'm gonna have to look into his work now, cause I really like that way of thinking about, I celebrate myself and sing myself what I assume you shall assume, this type of corporatization as he phrases it, um, could also be paraphrased in the really um, eyebrow raising moments when you hear we all bleed red from certain people in American society. Um, And it kind of has that certain tone if you start to read it in that way. Um, And but it's such a good marketing piece that Whitman does. And if I've learned anything, the more and more I look at Whitman and um, specifically homoeroticism, 
is he was such a, a an astute marketer of how he was going to get his poetry out even after he died and his legacy um mm -hmm. and that he made sure that his biographer horace trouble published these multiple volumes which i'm sure you've seen some of with walt whitman and camden and that he continued to hold the carrot in front of john addington simmons the victorian who kept asking him is calamus um speaking about a homosexual identity and whitman doesn't deny it the first letter it takes him he doesn't really answer the question until a year before he dies so it's it's so interesting mm -hmm. to me how he kind of leads on and forms a friendship i think with simmons but he's he's not really interested in ever defining um specifically trying to label this poetry as homosexual but also he leaves open the opportunity to for it to be read that way um well he sublimates it you know he tries to make it universal as well you know he tries to 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 redefine it as you know universal brotherhood which i i think of as a really poignant uh attempt by uh a, a gay man for whom that category did not exist or that label did not exist mm -hmm. to, to to sort of say we are all alike at this deeper level and it's partly out of this fear that if he lived out his impulses you know his his romantic or sexual impulses um that he would actually have been an outcast in a certain way if it had been made really public so it's this this counter effort to say you know we're all brothers and actually what i'm feeling is this this sublime universal brotherhood mm -hmm. um it's it's really touching it's kind of brilliant as a as, a, as it's a it's a brilliant evasion um mm -hmm. and it you know it probably made his whole life possible i mean in a way he was hiding in the plainest possible sight um which which really fascinates me uh, uh that you know the, the uh, in a way if he'd been a little bit more uh, shadowy or sinister about it he wouldn't have gotten away with it but uh <laughs> you know he was the good gray poet and so he he, mm -hmm. he could absolutely get away with with uh with everything yeah and um i think what you bring to bear is that vision of comradeship that's this whole brotherhood very um full of touch and he believes that it's going to heal the fractured country um, in the civil war is if men just intimately embrace one another but it's also very philosophical it, it harkens back to this type of um socratic idea um and mm -hmm. i think you do such a nice job portraying that in an operatic way with the actual soldiers on the stage and I thought you mm -hmm. you brought it to life for me because it, it's really difficult to try and visualize what you're classifying as these universal themes. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. like what does that actually look like um, when you try to portray that? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. Um, and yeah, well, I mean, yeah. the, it, it, it was a hellish. <laughs> environment in those hospitals um and so i wanted to really you know uh 
that that had to be the starting place. You know, the fact that that Whitman remained an optimist um, mm-hmm. and that he, he continued to find hope. Um, it, it's all the more extraordinary because of what he was witnessing and what the people around him were were, were going through. So we, you know, an opera about that period really has to start from the darkest possible place um, to show what, you know, what optimism is up against in a way. Mm-hmm. And before we, to turn away from Crossing, but I have one question because um, I realized how um, male-focused um, I've, well, I'm not going to say I made the conversation, but I, at the same time, there is a woman in the opera. I don't remember if she has a name. She's a messenger. Yeah, it is, it is uh, one of the limitations of the piece, or rather it's, you know, it's part of what gives the piece its <laughs> uh, particular texture, that it is uh, a very male piece. And that's partly why I wanted to write um, a piece with, with a soprano protagonist, Eurydice, immediately after Crossing. Ah, okay. So, so that was something you, you were conscious of. Uh, it it was yeah um and i think i may have done it differently if i were if i were starting now you know it's for for every reason you want a balance of of energies and perspectives um and also at the musical level uh it it can sound a bit dark and heavy if you have only male voices uh, on stage um but you know crossing the it's essentially a big one-act piece and it Mm -hmm. focuses on very few characters um, so I think it's not fatal that the texture is 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 what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, it's 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 not an experiment that I plan to repeat. Okay. Well, but at the same time, you're also it's a historical piece in representing these soldiers. So I think, in a way, I mean, it's this is a very different text, but um, well, text, not text. Um, composition, but I really love um, Leonard Bernstein's Serenade After Plato's Symposium. Um, And Mm -hmm. in that case, it's a very rare moment, I feel, in the ballet world to actually see that piece, because there's not a lot of times when men, male ballet dancers, are all assembled that way, where there, there is no partnering going on with the man and the woman. And it, sometimes it can become very traditional depending on which ballet you look at. And in a way that happens with the classic operas mm-hmm. too, of the romantic pairing. Um, so maybe that leads me to the certain queerness that I see with Serenade after Plato's Symposium and I think is there with Crossing um, with these, the layers that you've created. Um, And I know you've spoken to me before, but I'd love if you could explain what you mean when you say, like, what's the difference in your mind of saying, if someone contextualizes Crossing as, this is a gay opera, and even me saying that right now, (laughs) I want to recant it. Um, But, or if someone says, well, it's an opera that has a queer dimension. Uh, well, I'm not sure I see a difference, really. I mean, uh, 
yeah, I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't much care <laughs> what people call it. Um, but there is a, I mean, there's another kind of queerness in opera that's maybe more interesting um, than just the question of whether, you know, there's a same-sex relationship on stage, which is that um, opera for centuries has been concerned with 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 masks and mistaken identities and um, you know the pants rolls as they're known you know female singers portraying men and mm. you know a, a voice type like the countertenor uh, which is a very high male voice that has historical connections to castrati uh, men who were literally castrated so as to be able to sing like women so um in a way the the explicit uh queerness is the least interesting kind <laughs> um and and uh, the the whole history of operas is full of um uh, of things not being as they they seem, you know, of being kind of a drag show in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, that's really fruitful. Um, uh, because it, I think it, it allowed a lot of things to be said that could not have been said um, directly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, for me, the, the, the character of Carabino in Mozart's Nozze di Figaro is like, you know, my first queer icon. It's a, it's a, teenage boy portrayed by uh, a mezzo-soprano. Um, and, you know, I, I encountered that piece when I was pretty young and certainly had not figured out my own uh, identity uh, in any conscious way. Um, but I think I certainly recognized that this character was androgynous, was, was something different from everyone else in the opera, where there's a, you know, sort of virile baritone and there's a very ladylike soprano and then there's this other thing there's this other presence um which i found totally beguiling and the fact that carabino is also um a, literally a hormonal teenager who is saying i don't know what's happening to me um that's very touching um because the audience also doesn't know what's happening <laughs> you know it's 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 uh uh, what are we to make of, of of a character like of like like Carabino and and you know Strauss picks up on this with with Octavian in Der Rosenkavalier which which is a similar um, you know we're told that the character is a is a, a teenage boy who's going crazy for women but that's you know it, 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 it it's it's more complicated than that um, in the music. Um, so yeah, I guess I would say that a lot of opera is a giant drag pageant, yeah, and, I, <laughs> and uh, it's really choose your own adventure. And I well, I love also how you talk about what you gravitated towards in understanding your own identity. And you know, I'll speak for my. I think I really realized um, I was not quite like the other young boys around me when I was fanning out over those three ladies in Mozart's The Magic Flute. Um, for some reason, I find them fascinating. It's the sure sign. Yes, that was uh-huh. a sure sign. And um, also, I find that The Witch is such a drag type of performance in the Hansel and Gretel opera. Totally. Um, and, you know, can be sung by by a man or a woman, actually, too. So. Yeah, and... Um, 
Yeah, well, I think I now have to return to some of those pieces, the, especially the ones you mentioned, because I'm now going to have a certain angle when I approach those texts. Um, but I'm also curious, did you grow up, because now you've kind of taken us, even if you didn't want to take us into your childhood, um, it sounds like you had a certain awareness of classical music growing up. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of, uh, I think anybody who's a professional classical musician, almost everybody got started very young. Um, so I, yeah, I, I discovered it. I caught the bug when I was six or so. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, dusty here. Uh, yeah, I mean, first, just the piano and uh, messing around, trying to make stuff up. And uh, it, for me, it was instrumental music first. I think uh, it, the opera is very off-putting to kids. Typically, it seems kind of shrieky. And so it took a couple of, couple of years um, for me to kind of open my mind to... Uh, and it was the Mozart operas first. I think they're, um, you know, they're, they're long and they're a little complicated, but the music is so immediate and, and appealing and memorable um, and a little bit sweet uh, yeah. that I think, you know, a certain kind of kid can, can really, can really connect to it. Mm. And so how many, um, were you playing many instruments when you were younger? Yeah. I mean, piano was always my primary instrument. I also played clarinet for a while. Uh, played some percussion in high school. Um, still love to just bang on a percussion instrument, though I, I'm, I'm not an expert at it. Um, but yeah, piano was always, um, was, was always my instrument, uh, though I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a capital P pianist. Uh, I don't stay super in shape, but the piano is a very dear friend. It's, and it's also, uh, it's a real uh, helpful tool for composition you know i'm definitely a uh, um uh, a, a sensual <laughs> composer in the sense that i, I want to feel the music as i'm writing it and so i i, I want to have my have my hands in the keys um yeah do you sing as well um i have yeah, i mean yeah sure i i sing to myself 24 hours a day it's probably probably drives my husband crazy um but i have also uh studied voice a little bit i figured that if i'm gonna you know make singers suffer through my music uh i should at least know what it feels like um and it's it's you know it, it, it's really important i would recommend everybody should take voice lessons at some point you know because it, it you don't have to have a great voice it's not about you know you don't have to be Pavarotti. Um, but just learning to control these muscles that we all have, you know, you don't, you don't have to go out and buy a trombone um, and, you know, take care of that instrument. We all have an instrument mm -hmm. <laughs> in our, in our throats. Um, and it doesn't take very much to just learn a few basic things about support and, and breathing and, and, and legato. And um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's highly recommended. Yeah. It keeps you in, in shape as well, um, in terms of, well, like you said, thinking about your breath 
is really important and posture. Um, but I have to ask just because of one of my passions, but have you ever taken dance lessons? <laughs> I'm afraid not though. You know, uh, I, I co-founded a, an ensemble called AMUC, which stands for American Modern Opera Company, AMOC, a few years ago. Um, and it's, it's really important to my artistic life. And uh, the members of AMUC are um, both musicians and dancers. Um, and so I've, I've gotten to know a few truly amazing dancers uh, over the past four years or so. And I, so I'm, I'm around dancers a lot. And I, I would like to say that um, some of their their expertise and their sheer you know comfort in their own skins has rubbed off on me, but I'm not sure that it has. I, I never I never took dance as a kid, that's for sure. I'm I'm a total klutz. <laughs> well, when you were talking about this was going back a little, but you said about this the traditional way of composing, or especially in the opera world, it can feel very isolating. Um, and I've thought about a lot now, especially as a writer, I'm part of now a Zoom writing group and there's so much energy we all gain together and we're just sharing ideas back and forth. And I love that community. And it reminds me of why I gravitate towards the Bloomsbury group of England or um, mm -hmm. the Pre-Raphaelite group. I'm really um, infatuated with um, the Rossettis and um, but also the Broadway musical teams. There's such a community. I think they used to, I don't know if they still have these establishments, but they used to go to um, certain buildings and you could, I don't know if it was a restaurant, but you would just go in and whoever was there, you would work on a piece together. And I know in a way that's how Stephen Sondheim and uh, Mary Rogers, um, many different composers met up that way. Um, is It seems like you are part of a burgeoning, shall we say, community of sorts like mm -hmm. that in the opera world. Is there some sort of collaborative team like that coming up? where you can gather together? Yeah, I would say that that's what we're trying to make um, AMOC, A-M-O-C. Um, you know, we, we created that company. I say we, um, the stage director, Zach Winokur, um, and the company's artistic director uh, is, a, is a dear friend of mine. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about five years ago and said, look, we, we know who our favorite colleagues are, hmm. um, but it's so hard um, to work with them when these institutions are always the, the kind of middleman. You know, if two opera singers love working together, sometimes the most they can do is tell their managers, you know, try to book us together for a show, you know, and that might take four years <laughs> Uh, and it might be a single project and they might not really have much creative control. So we thought, let's try and create a new model here where um, the artists have control. The artists are working with colleagues that they want to work with and they are working on projects that they generate. And 
my responsibility as a co-founder and especially Zach's as the artistic director is to, you know, fundraise, to keep an eye on what those projects are and help them come to life and find partners um, for them. And it's really great. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm coming to you from Vermont and uh, we gather in pre-pandemic times and hopefully in post-pandemic times, we, we gather every August here in Vermont um, and spend a month uh, working on all the different shows that, that are in the hopper, so to speak, all the things that will then, you know, tour in the following season. Mm. Um, and it's been so great. Um, it's been, it's been a real uh, blessing in my life to have, to have this community. And I think there have been amazingly fruitful um, interdisciplinary um, collaborations that have sprung up, you know, the dancers and the instrumentalists and the singers have in some cases found a really rich vocabulary to talk to each other in ways that, you know, they, don't, they, they normally don't learn to do. Conservatories don't always teach um, that kind of active collaboration. Um, but, you know, in spite of, <laughs> in spite of all of this, I will say that um, for me, uh, the the creative process itself tends to be more of a solitary one. I think some artists, you know, people who are stage directors or choreographers, you know, they they really thrive uh, in the room. Uh, ideas occur to them in the room with with other people. Um, whereas for me, I I actually do really love and and cherish the solitude <laughs> of of writing. Mm. Um, I, I love to then bring whatever I create to uh, colleagues and and let them run wild with it and you know yeah, transform it uh, in many ways you know beyond what I could have imagined. But for me, uh, the the creative process is mostly a solitary one, and I think you know every artist has to figure out for themselves um, whether they work best uh, in a creative way on their own or in a group. Mm. Well, I want to ask how much, because you were working with Sour Roll, how much were you in constant conversation with each other or was it more you would do your writing in an isolated environment and then you would check in with her so she could hear how you were envisioning her words? That's a good question. Um, so Sarah and I, in the creation of, of Eurydice, uh, we, we were in contact very frequently, but the conversations were not usually that long. Um, and I think the reason that it was, it was a relatively, actually, I think it was a remarkably seamless process as these things go. Often, you know, composers and librettists are, you know, clawing at each other and despising each other by the end of the process and Sarah and I actually are are on very good terms and you know would be very happy to work together again um part of the reason for that is that uh Eurydice as a play did not need that much adjusting to become a libretto um it was not like adapting a Shakespeare play which is full of so many words that you you sort of have to throw out 80% of them, you know, I think the, the libretto of Otello is probably only about 20%, 25% the length of Othello, the play. 
Hmm. Um, it's a little bit of a different proportion with with Sarah's work because it's it, it has a certain spareness and it's not as long. So um, there were some times when Sarah would kind of give me a, a draft and then let me chip away and make changes. Uh, and other times I would call her up and say, I'm really stuck here. Uh, <laughs> what, what should we do? Um, but it was, it was relatively uh, light. You know, if, I think if you're, if you're working from nothing, if you're building an idea from the ground up, it's, it's a much more intense process. Mm. Well, I'm curious, did you see, a, did you want to see or um, had already seen a maybe live production or recording of her play? I'm sorry, Andrew. Could you could you repeat that? It cut out for one sec. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, did you want to see her play performed before you were uh, crafting your composition? You know, I I did want to see it performed, but I was just never in a place where it was being performed. It's so strange because her play Eurydice and a lot of her plays are done a lot. They are performed all over the place, including. Um, many college campuses, mm -hmm. um, but I was always, I just missed them. So for better or worse, I have never seen, well, that's not true. <laughs> I did see um, uh, a, a staged reading performance of Eurydice the play, but believe it or not, I only saw that the day after the opera's premiere. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> there was, we did a staged reading um, at, at uh, the Getty Villa in Los Angeles. Uh, as part of the kind of festival surrounding the opera's premiere. So that's that's kind of ironic <laughs> that I didn't see the play till the day after it was performed. Well, as a playwright, I mean, you don't have to, I'm not asking you um, to take over <laughs> Sarah's psyche, but I'm just curious, as a playwright, I could imagine there might be moments where you it can be tough to separate the play from the opera. Like how it translated mm -hmm. as a play and now how it's translating as an opera. But I'm sure that must be anytime there's an adaptation going on of a work. Um, and were there ever conversations? So you're, you're curious about how, like her, her perspective on what, you know, what, what was gained and what was lost? Yeah, yeah, what was, I'm curious, what was her perspective on that? I mean, I think, uh, though Sarah had not worked in opera before, she quickly um, grasped kind of the rules of the medium in a way that I really appreciated, that she, she knew that it was gonna be very different and she embraced that um, and enabled it uh, in her libretto. Um, I do remember one very funny early conversation where um, we were kind of talking through the play and Sarah said, well, you know, there's some parts of the play that are, that are kind of, it's a, it's a comedy at times. You know, the, the, there's parts that are funny. Is opera allowed to be funny? <laughs> and I thought that was just so touching. Um, and it also sort of means that opera has really failed <laughs> to communicate the full range of what it can be. Um, because of course we 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 need uh, the whole spectrum of energy. We need 
joy and and humor in the art form. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's not something you automatically think of, especially with newer pieces. Hmm, so of course I told her, yes, it, it's not only allowed, we actually desperately need it. Um, and I, I did try to, um, I did try to make some parts of Eurydice really funny, like, you know, the, the, the role of Hades, Lord of the Underworld, is, is taken by a very high tenor. You know, I wanted to create the sense that when Hades <laughs> comes up to the to the human world, uh, that he's kind of, he's unaware of how absurd he sounds. He sounds <laughs> sort of like he's on helium, but he, he doesn't know that he's on helium. Um, so he's speaking in what he thinks is a conversational tone of voice, but actually it's all bananas high, at the very, very top of the tenor register. Um, and I'm happy to say that a lot of those, a lot of those lines got big laughs in Los Angeles. You know, there, it, it, it did not, it was not just sort of opera chuckles. I think we've all heard those depressing kind of opera chuckles when people know that something is supposed to be funny, but it's not actually funny. So you force yourself to, to chuckle. Um, <laughs> that was one of our rules. We don't want that. We want people to actually laugh. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard. Yeah. Well, it's so, I'm so glad because now I'm so, I'm excited to, I feel like you've given all of us uh, a primer of sorts for how to approach Eurydice, not in the interpretive way, but just that we can expect it to have comedic elements because um, beside from Crossing being one of my favorite operas, which is true, not just saying that, I think my, fav Thank my favorite classic opera is um, Cosi Fantuti, um, which mm -hmm. I would say is a comedy. Definitely. Um, it's a dark know. one, but it, it is it is a comedy. Yeah, yeah but I, I find that there's a lot, maybe <laughs> it's because I prefer the dark comedy um, aspect, but um, even the mousetrap, right? Um, there's the classic comedic operas, but um, it's so interesting that there really, there isn't that many contemporary comedic operas. Um, it's, yeah, I wonder why. That yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a challenging uh, idiom for it. You know, I think uh, you can write funny operas in a sort of pastiche backwards looking um, musical idiom. And some people have, have tried that, but a lot of contemporary music, you know, there's there's a certain solemnity to the musical materials that makes that impossible. But I think, you know, the composer Gerald Berry, who's a fantastic Irish composer, has really um, broken the sound barrier of the comic opera with his, you know, for just one example, is he, he has an importance of being earnest opera, where, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much everything happens at light speed. Um, warp speed, <laughs> you know the the all of the kind of repressed social anxiety that is that is present in the wild, um, kind of bursts forth in in his in his opera, um, and it's it, it's so invigorating because um, it it really feels like the the play has been ignited 
um, uh, but that's not the kind of thing that's going to please a a, a, a conservative opera goer. It's it's kind of it's too extreme, um, mm-hmm. which is you know why I why I appreciate it. Yeah, and um, well, as we're wrapping up, I like to. <laughs> Uh, play a game. We're not actually going to play a game, but I feel like I've started to play a game with you, Matt, and I'm going to, whenever it enters into my thought, I'm not going to try and reach out to you, but I think now that I know you're always looking for different material, any literary text that I gravitate towards, I think, oh, I wonder how Matt would compose that, (laughs) but I'm not Uh going to... (laughs) I, could, I feel like I could do a lightning round, but that would be um, tiring. But one, I'm sure every time you pick up a you pick up a text, you probably have a moment where you think about how that text might translate into the operatic medium, or maybe you don't. I'm curious if that passes your mind. Yeah, it, it, it's <laughs> it's always in the back of your mind. The composer Oliver Nussen said that if you ever see a composer in a bookstore, no matter what they're looking at, they're actually thinking, could I do it? Could I make it do an opera? Uh, which is sort of true. Um, but the answer is no, 99.5% of the time. You know, it's it's like, uh, it's, a, it's a strange combination of qualities. Uh, this is a good, this is a good note to end on, I think. It's kind of like, what are, what are the, the elusive, qualities of um uh of a, of a text that is that can be an opera i think first it has to it has to feel kind of unfinished you know it has to feel like there's something that's still open that that music could add mm. um that if, if a text really has everything and is just bursting with a kind of music of its own then there's really no point um to to just to, to doing anything with it um and for me another important thing is that it should have a certain kind of dreamlike or surreal quality um, because, you know, opera is automatically absurd. Everyone is singing. It's, it's, it can never be realistic because everyone is singing. It's, it's the basic fact. Um, and so for me, um, really kind of prosaic everyday settings, um, often, you know, uh, I would rather see them rendered as a sitcom or whatever um mm-hmm. no reason to make them into an opera so I, I tend to want um the world of the piece to have a sense of the uncanny um because i think you know music is most at home uh evoking that that kind of kind of world it's not a hard and fast rule mm-hmm. um but uh if uh you know if <laughs> If a piece is too close to, you know, the the Seinfeld register, <laughs> you know, which is like it, 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 I think of Seinfeld as like the the most perfectly spoken as opposed to sung um, piece of culture ever created, um, mm-hmm. and it's a masterpiece. But it, it it's absolutely in the form that it should take. You know, there, there's no reason to there's no reason to set it to music. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. Yeah, I love how you explain that because, yeah, I mean, I also think there's some texts, right, like which medium is best to serve a certain storyline and um, Mm -hmm. musical theater has a certain bombastness to it 
sometimes, mm -hmm. depending on the piece. Um, yeah. But shall we say that Call Me By Your Name is your next opera? <laughs> Talk about a piece that is already everything it needs to be. Okay, so it's not going to be that. <laughs> um, well, this was just such a wonderful conversation, and I feel that you've provided an insight into what it means to be an opera composer and um, kind of just taking down the layers of having a look into your profession, which is fascinating. So thank you so much for this. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for, thanks for having me.